Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sunday School Hour for Victory Baptist Church for this Sunday, September the 13th, 2020. It's currently 9.57 a.m. Central Time, started just a few minutes early because, well, yes, here we are again. We are back to live streaming only, no in-person services It's just the way things are. It's based off the things that have happened. Obviously, everyone pray for Emma as she um, tries to recover from Um, COVID-19. Please pray that there's no long-term side effects. And just, uh, you know, obviously, if she needs anything, uh, the church will be, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be willing to do anything that she needs uh, if there's any need that arises. If the Danzlers need anything, they can let us know as well. So just uh, pray for uh, Emma, pray for the Danzlers, and pray just for all, pray for each other. Because this is a, uh, <laughs> it's, a it's a crazy time. It's hard. I mean, I, I was starting to think, okay, maybe, maybe we can get back to just Sunday, at least Sunday morning. Maybe we can add Sunday school. We could get back to Sunday school, Sunday morning, in-person services. Even if we can't get back to Sunday night and Wednesday, we could at least have Sunday morning. And well, things don't always work out the way that we, uh, that we want, right? That's the way life works. Life doesn't, uh, life doesn't sit there and go, so what would you prefer today? Uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So we have to make the best of the situation that we have, and that's what we're going to try to do. Uh, praise God that we have technology, that even if we can't be here, that wherever you are, whatever you are doing this morning, that we can come together around God's Word, that we can still hear the Word of God taught, we can still be challenged to think. Um, yes, it's unfortunate that it happened right now, because if you remember, we're in Romans chapter 6. And I believe Romans chapter 6 is possibly the most difficult section in all of the book of Romans, maybe one of the most difficult sections in the entire Bible, Different in a, difficult in a different way. Not difficult like, wait a minute, I don't know what this is saying. Wait, who's, who is this talking about? Wait, what's going on? No, this is a situation where it appears to be clear, but when you start thinking about it, it doesn't make any sense because we don't know how it works. It, this is a situation where Romans chapter 6 gives you an idea, gives you a, a principle. And when you try to put that into, when you try to m- remove it from the theoretical into the practical, into how that works Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of your life, that's when it becomes complicated. And then you have to go back and go, wait a minute, maybe we re- we misinterpreted this. Maybe we misunderstood this. So it's a very, very difficult section. And because it's a very difficult section, I was glad that we were at least having the Sunday morning services with everyone present because I felt that I trying to teach this, trying to work through the difficulty of Romans chapter six, I feel I feel really needs people present, but because now I don't, you know, obviously we're not, we, we can't have any in, in-person, you know, services. We're going to probably wait to the beginning of October and depending on what's happening at that point, who knows? So now I have to kind of approach this. We may be back in this kind of teaching situation where I'm teaching here in an empty building for at least the rest of September and we don't know how long. So I have to go, I have to, I had to make a decision. Do I just push Romans 6 aside that we've already started to go do something else that would be more, it would be easier to do with live streaming, uh, you know, in an empty building? 
or do I try to press on with Romans chapter 6? I'm going to try to press on with Romans chapter 6, but I'm going to try to approach it. I'm going to try to do this in a unique way based off the circumstances that we're now facing, right? We're, we're back to live streaming, and because of those circumstances, then I feel I can change things up a little bit. So we're going to approach this in a unique way. Hopefully, this will be proved to be beneficial, and hopefully, this will be helpful, right? So let's remind ourselves of Romans chapter 6, all right? Let's just remind ourselves of this chapter. Let's do a little quick review of some of the things that we've already discovered, and we're going we're gonna to look at uh, some of the problems that we've already uncovered, all right? Basically, let's remind ourselves of this. Romans chapter six, we can, uh, we can really kind of break it down into, uh, to really two parts. All right. Romans chapter six, verses one through 14, uh, deals with a question about sin and grace. And uh, verse 15 to the end of the chapter deals with a question about law and grace. So we have two basic questions that we can we can break the chapter uh, down into looking at these two questions. Question number one is a question about sin and grace. And the second question in verse 15 is a question about law and grace. Let's remind ourselves of the two questions, all right? Romans chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Very simple, very straightforward question. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And again, I some people view the question as kind of being antagonistic, kind of being like trying to make an argument. I, I think, look, Romans chapter one, two, three, or Romans one through five, it, it's definitely talked about sin, but it's also talked about the grace of God and that we're justified by grace and we're justified apart from works. And we talked about all of the things in regards to justification. So it would be natural for someone to say, well, wait, if grace is so amazing and grace is so awesome and grace is so wonderful, then why don't I just continue to sin so that grace may abound? And obviously, some may ask the question in an antagonistic way as trying to make an argument against Paul's teaching about God's grace and about justification apart from works. Some may ask it that way, but there may be some who ask that question and are being very sincere. So whatever the motivation for the question, whatever the reason Paul raises the question, because maybe he's heard that some people, you know, maybe he's anticipating that some people have a real question and are genuine and they're questioning, and maybe he, he's aware that some people are going to use this kind of argument to attack the doctrine that he has taught. Whatever the case may be, it's a question that we all need to consider, and mainly we need to consider it because of how Paul answers this question, right? So let me give you the question again. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now the second question is in verse 15. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. So the first question deals with sin and grace. And the second one deals with sin and law. All right. Sin and grace, or, or I should say this. The first question is about sin and grace. The second question is about law and grace. That's the correct way to, to state it. So question number one is about sin and grace. Hey, should we continue to sin? So that grace may abound. And the second question, let me read it to you again. Romans chapter six, verse 15. What shall we, what shall, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Now he's going to turn now in verse 15. The question really becomes, Hey, we're no longer under law. We're, we're no, we're, we're no longer under law. 
Okay, we're under grace. So this is about law and grace. All right, now sin is obviously involved there, but you get the idea, all right, to, to draw a distinction between the two. So question one, about sin and grace. Question two, about law and grace. Now, please remember how each section works. The question, first you have the question, then you have the answer, then you have the explanation. So in each case, the the entire chapter is divided by two questions, right? Question number one is a question about sin and grace that goes from verse one to verse 14. Then you have a question about law and grace that goes from verse 15 following. In those sections, you have the question that is that is posed or put forth. You have the question. You have a very simple, straightforward answer that is given. Then you have an explanation, all right? And you can see how that works with question number one. Let's look at it. Romans chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the, there's the question dealing with sin and grace. Here's the simple answer. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Then starting in verse three, down to verse 14, guess what? Now you get an explanation. Now you get an explanation. And I, and it was stated by people in the church, and I agree with this this idea, that the explanation really is where all the problems began. Now, just simple answer would, the simple answer would still pose some questions and some difficulties. But once you get into the explanation, it just seems the difficulties just begin to pile up and you just become more, it becomes more convoluted, more confusing and more difficult to unwrap. Now, I have listened to who knows how many sermons this week on Romans chapter six. And it seems that in every situation, I, by the time the sermon is over, I'm more confused than when I started. Because it's it's almost like the people preaching the sermons are are completely unaware of reality. Like it's like they're they're preaching a theory, and they never even bother to ask themselves how does this theory work in real life, and that that, that becomes very frustrating. So we're going to try to unpack this, and we're going to try to figure this all out. Now we I think we can all I think we all should be able to remember what the first major problem was. All right, the first major problem. So we have the question about sin and grace. There we go. We have no problem with the question. I have no problem about the question about law and grace. I understand the questions. Makes perfect sense. I can understand why people would ask the questions, right? Whether in an antagonistic way or in a way that just demonstrates that they're really trying to figure it out. I can understand that. But then Paul answers the question in verse two. The first question, he provides an answer. All right, so the question Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Problem number one is understanding what it means to be dead to sin. And we looked at commentary after commentary after commentary who understood dead to sin to mean that you and I are dead to sin in a very practical way. Just as a dead person cannot respond to, you know, all kinds of different things offered to it because they're dead, you and I, we can't really respond to sin because we're dead to it. We can't respond to it. It has no power over us. It has, it can't persuade us because we are dead. And every, all the commentaries spoke of it in a very practical way that practically I am dead to sin. Therefore, sin no longer has any power over me. Therefore, I shouldn't sin. Now, 
The problem is in every commentary, they would say that and then backtrack and then say, well, you're not going to be perfect. You're still going to sin. Well, if I'm not going to, if I can't be perfect and I'm still going to sin, then how am I dead to it? I'm dead to it, but I can still do it. I'm dead to its influence, but I can still give in to that influence. I'm dead to its tempting power, but I can still succumb to the tempting power. It makes absolutely no sense. And we saw that in commentary after commentary. So that's the first big problem. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And we ended last week with trying to offer a possible alternative meaning that dead to sin, could we, could we possibly understand that we're dead to sin in a positional way, but we're not dead to sin in a practical way? Now, we haven't been able to prove that, but that's the theory that I have offered up. And we're going to tr- we're going to try to prove that before this is over. But the problem is Paul gives that very simple answer head to sin, but then here comes where things get complicated. Then he starts his explanation. And his explanation worrying about what it means to be dead to sin, and now we have to figure out how did we become dead to sin? Right? So so we still got to figure out what it means to be dead to sin. Now we have to figure out how do how did how did you how did me How did all of us, if we claim to be Christians, how did we become dead to it? What led to us dying to sin? What killed us? What was, what was the thing that ultimately killed you and me as far as sin is concerned? That, that, you know, ultimately ended our living towards sin and being influenced by it. What was the thing that killed us? Well, look at this. Uh, Romans chapter six, verse three. Now Paul starts his explanation and he's going to bring up the problem. Know ye not? That so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. So the thing he points to, to explain what it means to be dead to sin, the, the way he explains this, to explain why you as a Christian and I as a Christian, that we, even though grace is amazing, and even though we want grace to abound, the reason you and I can no longer continue to sin and live in it is because we were baptized into Christ, baptized into his death. So wait a minute. So does baptism produce the death to sin? And if so, what does that mean? How does that work? What baptism is Paul referring to? He's referring to a water baptism? Is he referring to a different kind of baptism? Is this, is this passage, should we hear the sound of water in this passage, or is this passage completely absent of any water and no water is even being referred to here? Is this about having water applied to you or being put into water and then that somehow that water produces this or does the water simply demonstrate this? How do we understand what Paul is talking about? Now, we can approach this in a very easy way. We can approach this going, hey, this is what I've been taught. This is what my church teaches and just go from it from that perspective. I could give you a very simple answer, throw it out there. Everyone would say, amen. We could wrap it all up in about 45 minutes and be done with it and move on to the next section of Romans. But that would be, that would be unfortunate to do it that way. In fact, it would be foolish to do it that way because it really wouldn't answer any of the questions. So let's go through these again. Question number one, what does it mean to be dead to sin? We still got to figure that out. Number two, how do we become dead to sin? Right? And number three, what baptism is Paul referring to in Romans chapter six? 
All right. Now, obviously, question two and three are related. I just separated them just to try to show you. I, I kind of give you a the, the way I'm thinking, trying to give you a, a process to try to take this chapter apart. Obviously, Paul is trying to answer two other different questions. See, here's what happens. He poses two questions and then his answers leads to more questions which leads you with no answers, all right? And that's the, like, we got the a question about sin and grace. We got a question about law and grace, right? Those are the questions we need answers to. But we can't even answer those questions because we are immediately then confronted with other questions. Well, wait, wait. What does it mean to be dead to sin? What does that mean? Dead to sin, what does that mean? Number two, how do I become dead to sin? Number three, what baptism is Paul referring to? Just in question number one about sin and grace, we end up with three more questions. We don't even really, we can't, in fact, what happens is we almost stop even considering the question Paul is trying to answer because we've got our own questions that arise from Paul's supposed answer to the question he posed. So really, this is all about questions, questions, questions. And at some point, hopefully when it's all said and done, you can go, okay, whoo. I almost started drowning in all the questions, but I think I reached the shore and now we have some answers. I don't know if we're going to get to the shore because right now we're splashing around in the middle of the ocean and we don't even know where the shore is. But all we can do is continue to look at these questions and try to figure this out. All right. So here's what we're going to do. Because we're back to live streaming, we're going to use this as an opportunity. We're going to listen to a lot of other people try to explain to us what this baptism is. Now, in so doing, they're going to talk about what it means to be dead to sin, and we will we will talk about that. But I've got the audio, and we're going to sit back, and we're going to listen to it, and we're going to analyze it. Just like we did while we were in person, I went through all the different commentaries on what it means to be dead to sin, and by the time we got done, nobody, I don't think anyone in the church felt that they were helpful. I don't think anyone in the church uh, believed that those commentaries offered us anything in a, of a meaningful explanation of what it actually means to be dead to sin. So we threw out our theory that the dead to sin has to be a positional and not a practical thing. We've still got to prove that. But as we move on in the text, we can't continue to move, talk about being dead to sin because now we are confronted. What, what does it mean? What is it? What, what baptism is Paul referring to? What, what is he talking about here? And let's read it again. Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. All right? So what Paul seems to be saying is, hey, hey, what does it mean to be dead to sin? I'm not going to really explain ultimately what it means to be dead to sin, but I'll tell you how it all came about. The, the way it came about is very simple. You were baptized into Christ. You're baptized, you're buried with him. So you died and then you are, are then you experience a resurrection and now you raise in a newness of life. Now we've all see, heard that that expression. It sounds so good, but what does that mean in a practical way? Most preachers preach this to mean, hey, when you were saved, now some will say, you know, baptism pictures it. Some will say baptism accomplished it. We'll talk about all of that. But that somehow you died and then you rose again 
and to walk in a newness of life, a new person, dead completely to the power and the influence of sin. But obviously we know what happens. We continue to sin. So see the dead to sin thing, we're, we're right back to trying to figure that out, but we got to figure out this baptism, right? Now, I want you to keep this in mind, all right? So what does it mean to be dead to sin? How do we die to sin? And is what baptism is Paul referring to? Those are the three questions we're working on. Now, when it comes to the baptism, I want you to realize you have basically two options. Water, no water. Water or no water. All right, water or no water. All right, now within those two options of water and no water, there's a lot of other issues we'll have to deal with. But right now, just realize, is this a water baptism Paul is referring to? Or is no water at all involved here? What baptism is he referring to? A water baptism or some other kind of baptism that doesn't involve water? Now, once we figure out the kind of baptism, then we got to figure out what the baptism actually does. Does the baptism actually do the, 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 the fixing the position? Does it, does it actually lead to a dying to sin practically? Or does it simply symbolize something? Like, does the baptism produce it or does the baptism symbolize it? That's a different issue, right? I, I could just literally, I could give you like 50 questions and, and, and we're going we're gonna to drown in questions for a while. But just remember, we have to deal with these questions. So what is this baptism? That's what we're going to try to figure out, right? Once we figure out what the baptism is, then we'll figure out exactly what it does and how it works, all right? So the, the, the issue is, is it water or no water? Water or no water? Let's just listen to a lot of, we're, I've got a lot of audio here. We're going to just work through it. We'll go through this hour and then the next hour we'll pick it up and we'll, and maybe we'll have to come back to, to this tonight. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how far we can get. I, I could literally go from sermon to sermon to sermon to sermon to sermon listening to, uh, we could go, we could go weeks doing this, but I just want you to give you kind of a general idea. The first clip is very short. It's about five minutes. It's going to give you one perspective. Let's see if you can pick out what perspective this is. Here we go. All right. We're trying to figure out what is this baptism in Romans chapter six? What is it? Let's see what they have to say in the first audio clip. Here we go. The second reading is from Romans chapter six, verse three to 11. And it's all about baptism. So that's why I keep focusing on baptism. You might think, why are you focusing so much on baptism, Dr. Petrie, when this is about the resurrection? Well, because those are uh, two ways of talking about the same mystery in many ways. Listen to what Paul says about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a what? Resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul describing here? Baptism is, in short, 
our participation in not just the death of Jesus Christ, but also his resurrection. Baptism is not just our participation in his burial into the waters of death, but also our participation in his resurrection from the waters of death through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that uh, immersion, baptismal immersion, uh, is such a powerful symbol of death and resurrection. Because if you take a child and you immerse that child, for example, or an adult, in the waters of baptism, when you go underwater and you come up from the water, what do you do? <gasps> you, know, you take a deep breath, right? It's like the intake of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of new life in Christ. It's the beginning of a new creation. And that's really the theme that the church is calling us to focus on on the Easter Vigil, is the theme of a new creation and resurrection from the dead. And I'll end with this quotation from the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church on this matter, because I think this is something really important for us to stress. As we're coming to the Easter Vigil, and we're coming to the most important Sunday of all of the entire year, um, the Sunday of Easter, it's critical to remember why Sunday matters to us as Christians. And the Sunday matters for this reason, that Sunday is not just the day of the resurrection of Jesus, but it is the day of the beginning of the new creation. And when we die with Christ in baptism and rise with him through baptism, we no longer belong to the old creation, right? Which the worship was centered on Saturday, on Sabbath. We now belong to the new creation, which worship is centered on Sunday. This is very important for Catholics to understand. Why do we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday? When the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament say, keep the Sabbath day holy, right? That means keep Saturday holy. Why don't we follow that commandment? I mean, which other commandments do we break? Sometimes Seventh-day Adventists will ask that of Catholics. They think we're breaking the Decalogue. We're not breaking the Decalogue. The Sabbath itself was a shadow, and it was part of the old creation. But when we die with Christ in baptism, we become part of the new creation. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church actually says this in paragraph 2174. Listen to these words. I'll end with this. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's quoting Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, the verse we began our discussion with. Because it is, quote, the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection recalls the first creation. Because it is, quote, the eighth day following the Sabbath, it symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Christ's resurrection. For Christians, it has become the first of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's Day, Sunday. And then the Catechism quotes St. Justin Martyr, who says, We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God, separating matter from darkness, made the world. And on this same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2174. And that's really what Easter is all about. It's that God didn't come into the world just to save us from hell or to save us from our sins. He came into the world to make all things new, to usher in a new creation. And that is good news, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Happy Easter, everybody. Now, there is a Catholic perspective. 
In the Catholic perspective, you, in baptism, you die and you become a new creature. Baptism is the thing that brings about the death, brings about the new creation, brings about the spiritual resurrection. It happens in baptism. Now, here's the problem. Catholicism teaches that, and then what happens? You're baptized. Supposedly, now you're, you've died. You're resurrected. You have a new life. But then you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin. You can commit a mortal sin, lose the grace of God, and still end up in hell. So then, so then did you really die? Like, if you can die, but then yet not be dead to the point of committing a sin, that you can lose it, then what did baptism actually do? They believe that baptism actually brings about a practical death and resurrection, but it doesn't last. That, that, that makes no sense either. That, that to me is this one. So, so for the Catholic perspective, it's water. It's water. It actually brings about your death and your resurrection and you become a new creature, but you can obviously lose it through mortal sin, lose the grace of God, end up in purgatory, end up in hell, and end up everything. So, so they believe baptism not, brings about a death and a resurrection. You're infused with righteousness, but you have to cooperate with it. Well, what is there to cooperate with if I died? See, it, it, this is the weird thing. Like, hey, Romans 6, we die. How do we die? Baptism. See, in baptism, we die. No, they did. So they don't believe it's a positional. They don't believe it's a positional, so they believe it's practical, but they don't believe the practical last. Well, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. So, so the Catholic position is even more confusing. Hey, baptism actually produces something, but it just doesn't last. It doesn't work. So baptism is the thing that brings about the death. It brings about the new creation, and a practical way, not a positional way, but it will not last because then you're going to sin and you're going to sin. That, that's not helpful. That's not helpful in any way, shape, or form. That, that to me seems more convoluted and more confusing. Now, they didn't go into complete detail there, but it gave you just a sense of how, hey, in baptism, you die. In baptism, you're buried and then you're raised again. Now, they don't even, they, even though they acknowledge that immersion is the powerful symbol, they don't even practice immersion. Hey, immersion is a great symbol of this, but, but we don't practice that. We're, we practice sprinkling. Well, then why? If, if baptism is shows death, burial, and resurrection, then why wouldn't you practice immersion? They even acknowledge that immersion is the better symbol, but they, they know. They believe that, it, we, that, 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 it, that that's a better symbol. But the, the bottom line is what I want you to realize is they don't believe baptism is symbolizing something. They believe that baptism is producing it. So their answer is, how do you die to sin? Baptism. How do you experience the newness of life? Baptism. Now, but then what do they do? But it's not a lasting thing. It's not a guarantee. You got to cooperate with it. You need the church. You need the sacraments. You need penance. Don't commit that mortal sin. On and 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 on. So then baptism is, is what? So there, there's the Catholic position, right? The Catholic position to me is more convoluted and more confusing. But but hey, but let's be fair. That the, the the how convoluted and confusing it may be within Catholicism, it's just as conf- convoluted and confusing in the Protestant world. And what does this tell you? This tell you this tells you that Romans chapter six is obviously not as easy as preachers try to pretend that it is, because nobody really can figure this out. 
Nobody can figure out what it means to be dead to sin. Nobody can quite figure out what it, uh, how we end up dead to sin. And no one can quite agree on what it means, what the baptism means here. Catholics, it's water. It actually produces the death, the burial, the resurrection in you. You actually die. You are arisen to a new life. You become a new creature. However, you're still going to sin and you can lose it all. So that means you're really not dead. So I still can't figure out what the dead is because nobody, nobody can yet give me a good re- answer of how I can be dead, but not dead. All right. And so this one doesn't work. Let's, let's jump to a Protestant and let's get a Protestant uh, view on this. All right. Here we go. Now, this is a, lo- a lot longer clip. I don't know if we'll finish this during the Sunday school hour. We may have to finish this in the next hour, but we'll see. Here we go. All right. If you have any questions, members of Victory Baptist Church, please ask in the chat if you need me to clarify anything. Here we go. This is, I'm telling you, I hate (laughs) this. I did not want to do this uh, without people present because this chapter is so difficult. So I'm I'm just going to try my best and hopefully um, we we can make it through this. Here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 6, we're going to read the first 14 verses, and then we're going to pray, see what the Lord has for us here. What shall we say then, verse 1, are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like the, like, excuse me, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since since you are not under law, but under grace. Stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, minister grace and insight and understanding through your Holy Spirit to us today. And let the double-edged sword of your word do your work. We just open our hearts to learn from you today, to grow in our understanding of the scriptures, and to be filled with insight and truth in a time in this world where truth 
has stumbled in the streets. Fill us, Lord God, with understanding, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, I have to stop right there because I, I always find it humorous when they say, hey, Holy Spirit, teach us. Hey, God, teach us. Uh, well, Christians have been praying, God, teach us for 2,000 years. And after 2,000 years, we still can't find any agreement on Romans chapter 6. So again, I think this just demonstrates there's no supernatural power that's going to just give you understanding. It doesn't work that way. Christians constantly, this is again, this idea, we, we, sell a, we sell an idea, all the Christians buy the idea, but in practice, we know the idea doesn't work. Go, pray, God will give us understanding. God's going to teach us. I, look, look, Christians have been praying that forever, and we can't agree on pretty much anything in the Bible. So everyone prays for understanding. Everyone then studies. Everyone thinks then their understanding comes to them from God. Therefore, their understanding is correct. No, you pray for understanding, you study. That doesn't mean your uh, conclusion came from God. It came from your study and your study was either done correctly or it was done incorrectly. There is no supernatural impartation of understanding into your mind because if it worked that way, then we would all understand the same thing. There would be perfect Christian unity. Lord, help us understand baptism. Boom, we all agree on baptism. Lord, help us understand the Lord's Supper. Boom, we all agree on the Lord's Supper. Lord, help us understand the structure of the church and and how leadership in the church should work. Boom, we would all have the same church government. We would all have the uh, same church organization. Uh, Lord, help us understand how church discipline works. We would all agree on church discipline. Uh, Lord, help us agree on, should we have church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, or just Sunday morning? We would all uh, then have churches, the, the church services the same time, and we would all do them the same way. Clearly, we don't agree on anything. So I just hate, I hate that when a pastor gets ready to deal with a difficult passage because it almost, it, pastors are, 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 to me, it's a manipulative t- technique. Because pastor, now I'm not saying he's doing it that way, but I'll, I'll kind of go a little further the way some pastors do this. You know, I've been really struggling with this passage. I was praying and God helped me understand it. Well, that, that tells all the people listening that you can't question that pastor's conclusion because, hey, he prayed for God to give him understanding. So that must be God telling him what the passage means. No. The Protestant idea, it, we don't believe they're spiritual leaders who get a special impartation from God to get an understanding. We don't, that's, that goes against the Protestant idea. The Catholic idea is the Catholic Church. God gives them the understanding. They have the, the ability to interpret and the authority to, to interpret that. We reject that model. So either God is all giving us all the understanding, giving some people the understanding. Who gets the understanding? Well, the only way to understand this from a logical perspective is it comes from our study of the text. So let's see how the text is handled here. Let's see. And let's listen to what they have to say. So it's just, I have to at least point that out because, man, I hear that all the time and it just drives me crazy. Here we go. You know, I I appreciated the fact that Ken uh, here at the end of worship prayed about the times that we live in and the difficult season that we live in. It is difficult. And it, it begs the question, you know, what should we be doing like on a Sunday morning when we gather and, and, you know, with the difficulty of the times in which you and I live, I mean, the world is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. And, and the question kind of comes up like, so is it time now to kind of change the way we do things, the things we talk about? Should we not be just studying through the book of Romans on a Sunday morning? I mean, maybe we should be preparing people for persecution. 
Maybe we should be talking about how to stand for Christ in a very difficult time of the world. But I'm comforted by the fact that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome during a time when the church was greatly persecuted. Paul wrote this to believers living in Rome when a guy by the name of Nero was uh, the, the king, emperor, and he was a crazy man. I mean, he was a crazy man. And he, he enjoyed killing Christians, as a matter of fact. He used to put them up on poles and set them on fire and use it to light his garden. Now, even though this is not getting us to the answers that we want, I, it, I, do, I do find it interesting that uh, everyone talks about, hey, you know, Romans is written to Christians who are living under this crazy guy who was persecuting Christians. Remember, uh, that's also the book of Romans is the very book where uh, Paul tells those same Christians to be subject and to submit to that authority. All right. So I just find it interesting that like sometimes when we preach the book of Romans, hey, Nero, crazy persecution and 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 Paul tells them to submit. And then there's other times like, well, you know, that Romans 13, I don't think that really applies to wearing a mask or I don't think that really applies to the world in which we live now. You know, no, 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 no. I think it's time to rebel. So like so so which is it? Uh, when when do we submit to when do we not submit? When do you get to make up your decision? R- Nero was crazy, crazy, crazy. Everyone knows he was crazy. And Paul tells him to submit. But then we're like, no, I think we've reached too far in America. It's too much persecution. It's time to rebel. I, I w- we can't even agree on, on how to interpret Romans 13. It's like we we interpret Romans 13, whatever works for us, whenever we want it to work. But yeah, that's... So I think that's interesting, but let's let's see if we'll get to the actual Romans six uh, por- portion here. That's the kind of guy Nero was. Nero is the man who will eventually call for the beheading of the very man who's writing this letter. And according to church history, Paul will die under that reign. And yet, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he talked about our salvation. He talked about how we're saved. And he talked about all the benefits of that salvation. That's what we're getting into here in chapter 6. I'm comforted by that, knowing that, yes, even in times of difficulty, darkness, and persecution, we plot on and we keep talking about the faith that we have in Christ and the power of that faith to change lives. That's what Paul is dealing with here in uh in, in chapter 6, and when you begin reading this chapter, if it sounds like you're catching Paul in, a, in the middle of a conversation, you're absolutely right. That is what's happening. He is right in the middle of a thought that he began in the earlier chapter, in chapter 5, and you'll remember that at the end of that chapter, he made an important statement that is now generating the information that he's bringing forth in chapter 6. Just so we can all be on the same page as to the statement that I'm referring to from chapter 5, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. It's from Romans 5, verse 20, where he said these words, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so what Paul basically was saying there in chapter 5 is that when sin was on the move and actually increasing in the world and in the culture, 
that there is a corresponding work of God's grace that doesn't just meet that sin, it goes beyond that sin. It abounds, and those are Paul's words, where sin abounds, grace abounds, how much? In an equal value? No, it abounds all the more, right? And that is the statement that he made, and that is now what he is going to be using as a springboard for the comments that are coming here in Romans chapter 6. And he, what he's going to talk to you and I about, and I want to tell you this going into it so that we don't get lost. He's going to talk about our relationship to sin. What is your relationship to sin now? You know, we know what our relationship was before we met Jesus. Paul actually wrote about that in the book of Ephesians. Let me also Put that scripture up on the screen for you. Here's what he said. Here was your relationship with sin. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That pretty much says it, doesn't it? That says to you and I, this, this was our relationship to sin before we met Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses. We were literally enslaved to the passions of our flesh. We didn't have the ability to say no to our flesh before Christ. We had, you know, but in Jesus, he's changed all that. But this was our previous relationship. Please note, he just implied that now you have the ability to say no to your flesh. Now you have the ability to say no to your flesh. You didn't, but now you do. Now, again, he hasn't got to the baptism part yet, but this is just more evidence of this. This is the way Christians just teach. And everyone just sits in the pew there going, amen, that's that's wonderful. Yes, now I can say no. Well, if you can say no, then why did you sin this week? If you can say no, why are you going to sin today? If you can say no, why are you going to sin tomorrow? So can you or can't you? And again, now he, he he's not going to balance it out right here. He may hear it in a minute, but this is how it always works. You can say no to the flesh, but you won't be perfect. Well, then that means I can't like, so that means I can say no, but for some reason I don't say no because I don't want to say no. Well, if I don't, what, what's causing me not to say no? What's causing me not to say no? Because I'm dead to sin. So what's causing me? Like, what, what, do I have a sin nature? Does, did the sin nature go away? Like, what, could some Christian ever be consistent in talking about this? Like, it, it just, it's like, it's just stated so dogmatically, so emphatically, like, hey, you know, now you can say no to sin. Now, now you can say no to the flesh. Now you can. Now, nobody will. Nobody will. And, and I'm trust his congregation, all congregations are filled with people who profess faith in Christ, who have all kinds of issues and hangups in their life. They have sin. The, the, the reality of sin shows up in their life and their, their families. It, it, it shows up everywhere. So, yeah. Right. But this is, this is what you get when you listen to pastors on Romans chapter 6. Let's continue. Relationship uh, to our sinful nature. And then we came to Christ and put our faith in his work on the cross. And it changed a whole lot of things about our life. But here's what it also changed. And this is what Paul's going to talk about here today. It changed our relationship to sin. And so he begins with a question. 
Look at verse 1 with me again. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's kind of asking the question that he assumes that somebody might be forming in their mind. Well, Paul, you said that where grace abounds, or excuse me, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So should we just kind of sin? Should we just kind of give in to sin so that God's grace can abound? I mean, let's give him something to do. Have you ever talked to people who actually think it's God's job to forgive sins and it's theirs to give him something to forgive? It sounds like a crazy sort of an idea, but I've heard it. I've actually, I've actually had people look me right in the eye when confronted with something in their life that is unbiblical. I come back and I actually had someone say to me, well, God's just going to have to forgive me. That's what he does. Yikes. But, you know, who knows if, 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 if the question that Paul is forming here is something that was actually asked of him, probably was. But he says here, you know, so does that mean that we're just supposed to sin so that grace can abound? If we gave this question maybe a little bit more of a modern twist, it might sound something like this. So you're saying that the more people sin, the more God's grace overflows. So why don't we just sin up a storm so God can be gracious? You know, I mean, if all I have to do to be saved is believe, maybe that means I can just live the way I want. You know, I can live my life however I want to live my life because the Bible says just believe and you will be saved. Hey, what a great deal, you know. So Paul is going to explain here now how the relationship between you and sin has changed since you came to Christ. In fact, he's going to show here how believers now cannot any longer give in to a life of sin. That's why he starts in verse 2 by asking another question. Look there in verse 2. The question is, how can we, meaning believers, who died to sin still live in it. How can we do that? Paul is asking how it's possible to live in sin when in fact we've died to sin. And our response is, when did we do that? Do you understand that Paul is making a statement here without explaining where it came from? He's just talking. He's stating a fact. He says, by the way, did you know, don't you know that you died to sin? And we're all kind of going, really? When did that he doesn't he's not giving any background he's not giving any information he's not giving the backstory of this thing to us at all he's just saying hey by the way you died to sin okay all right so when did we die to sin well he goes on and he explains and 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 the how of how we died to sin look at verse 3 again and i love how he opens with these four words do you not know? This is, this is typical of Paul in Romans. He wants you to know. He wants us to know about our salvation. So he says, do you not know? What do we not know? Do you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he starts off with, do you not know? Well, here's the question. Did you know that? You know, I remember... When I learned this, it was not instantaneous. In fact, I think it was probably about four or five years after I started walking with the Lord. I mean, seriously walking with the Lord. That I went to a Bible class with a friend of mine in downtown Seattle. 
We were living there at the time. And they were expounding in this class on the book of Ephesians in ways that I had never heard the Bible expounded on before. And this guy was talking about, this, this teacher was talking about how when we come to Christ, we join him in his death. I had never heard that before. That was a mind-blowing sort of a thought to me. And I remember just kind of thinking, whoa, the, the implications of this are huge. And my mind was literally spinning with, you know, the, the whole idea. And so when Paul asks the question, do you not know? There was a point in my life where I would have had to say, no, I didn't know that. I had no idea that that was the case. But he says here that when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. You know, I I thought when I came to Jesus, I was just forgiven of my sin. Well, I was, but I kind of figured that's as far as it went. Hey, I'm forgiven, and I was glad. You know, I was like, hey, I'm forgiven of my sins. Praise the Lord. And then I come to find out that I've been baptized into his death. Look what he goes on to say in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, stop there for just a moment. Before we can understand what Paul is saying here, we have to understand a a good working definition for the word uh, baptism or baptized or or however Paul is using it specifically here. Let me ask you, I'll start by asking you a question. Have you been baptized into Christ? Now, when I ask that question, what people typically think I'm referring to is, when were you baptized in water? But that's not what I'm asking, and that's not. All right, now he's getting ready to go in a direction that's going to take this baptism and make it something different than water. So we've had the Catholic view. Okay, so let's let's try to let's try to take this all apart. Let's try to look at all of this. All right, we're still trying to fi- figure out what it means to be dead to sin. And obviously, almost every church and every pastor that we listen to and read is going to tell us that dying to sin is a practical thing, where we die to sin so that now we can say no to sin, and that we're no longer bound by it, that we're free from it, and that we you know, we no longer have to live under its control. However, we're still going to sin. So they 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 they're they're very confused and how they try to explain it. They don't think it through. They can't. It's just weird. Like on one hand, you're dead to it. You're free from it, but you're still going to do it. Okay. Well then I, how am I dead to it and free from it? Well, you won't do it habitually. Well, I mean, you're going to habitually sin. It'll just be different sins. Maybe I like, like nobody can really articulate what that means. So that's still a problem. All right. That's still a problem, and they're still all going to go in that. Everyone's going to kind of speak of being dead to sin in that way. But it all comes down to how did we die to sin? And the answer is baptism. Baptism is what makes us dead to sin. Now, does this make sense? So did baptism make us dead to sin in a practical way? Well, then, okay, that can be tested. So then that either means the baptism didn't work or something like, so we could get into a lot of discussions here, but baptism is going to be the the way that this supposedly takes place. Whatever it means to be dead to sin, baptism becomes the way in which it occurs. Now, the question is, what is this baptism? Remember, the Catholic approach, water. Water is put on you, boom, you die, you, you experience a resurrection of life, and now you move on. Now, of course, in their system, that doesn't really mean anything because you can commit a mortal sin five seconds after you're baptized and you destroy that grace and you could end up in hell. So like that, I don't even know, like their system, 
makes even less sense. All right. So, but it, so is it water? Is it water or is it not water? He's getting ready to go in a direction clearly that he seems to be moving towards that it wasn't water. This has nothing to do with water baptism. This is a different kind of baptism. It's not a water baptism. All right. So was this, so what, what baptism is this referring to? What baptism caused me to be dead to sin and, and buried and then, then risen again to walk in a newness of life? What baptism produced this? What baptism caused this? We still need that answer and we're out of time. So we're not going to be able to get to the answer in this hour. We're going to focus on this on the next hour because I'm just, and I know this may be a unique way to approach this, but I think, I think this is beneficial because I want you to, I want you to struggle with this. We've got to come up with an answer here. We've got to figure out what it means to be dead to sin. We have to. I still believe somehow it has to be positional. It has to be positional. It has to be. All right. I've got to be, I'm dead to sin in my position. I, I, I'm still going to go with that theory. We, I don't know if we're going to be able to prove it, but that's the theory I'm going with. So far, Paul's not even tried to explain what it means to be dead to sin. He's tried to explain when it occurred, how it occurred, what caused it. And he wants us to know somehow we, when we were baptized, sometime, somehow baptism is connected to it. Let me read it to you again. Romans chapter six, verse three. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Me becoming dead to sin was connected to when I was baptized into Christ, when I was baptized into his death. Now, did that happen at my water baptism or did it happen at another baptism? Now, either my water baptism produced a practical being dead to sin or my water baptism produced my positional being dead to sin or water baptism is not being spoken of here at all. And water baptism simply symbolizes this other baptism that we experienced. Is that, how how do we understand all of this? We have to try to clarify it to the best of our ability because there's so many opinions, so much confusion out there in regards to this subject. All right. So we're going to stop right here. I'll back it up just a, just a little bit. Um, and see, where did we stop? We stopped at 1354. Let me write that down. 1354. I'll back it up just a little bit for the next hour because we've got to figure this out. Uh, We've got to figure this out. And I think hearing other pastors try to articulate this gives us an idea of, of how churches handle this. So then when you are confronted by other Christians about Romans 6, you hear other sermons or you read commentaries, you'll be equipped to deal with it. You won't be tossed to and fro, which is my job is to try to equip you. I know this may be tedious. I I know you may be like, just give me a simple answer. If there was a simple answer, you wouldn't have so many different approaches to the text. And I'm telling you, just just look up every sermon you can on Romans 6. And after about about 12 hours of listening to sermons, you'll probably go, whoa, what? Does anybody have an answer? Does anybody know? Because everyone disagrees on this. So we're going to try to figure this out. So we're going to stop right there. Okay. Hopefully you're ready for the next hour. We'll be back here shortly. And uh, hopefully hopefully uh, we can get something from this. If you have any questions, either email me or post them in the chat. I will look at them. And if we need to address those questions, we'll do that in the next hour. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here shortly. God bless.